Shalom. This is Rabbi David Tilkiger of Congregation Maim Chaim, the Eastern Shores Messianic Synagogue in Daphne, Alabama. I want to thank you for taking the time to listen to this podcast of our message from Shabbat service. We pray it is a blessing to you and that you see the beauty and light of Yeshua Meshicheinu Yeshua, our Messiah, in every word you hear. Amen. Avrahamim, Father of mercies, we worship you, we love you, and we adore you. Father, I thank you for this Shabbat and this opportunity that we have as Mishpacha's family to be able to come together and worship you, to enter into your presence and to receive from you. I pray that as we dig into your word this morning, that Father, you will speak, that it be your words heard, your voice received, and Father, that nothing of me will be involved except that which you have ordained specifically for this purpose. B'Shem Yeshua Meshachinu, in the name of Yeshua Messiah, we pray, and everyone says, Amen. So this week, uh, we have a special Parsha reading because we are in the uh, middle of Passover, and so the, the normal uh, Torah cycle is kind of paused, if you would, as we deal with the festival, and, uh, and so we have a special reading specifically for that. This week, that special reading is from Exodus 33, uh, verse 12 through 34, 26, and then there's an extra reading from Numbers 28, which is just the passage of Numbers 28 that describes uh, Passover and taking the first day and the seventh day off and, and the sacrifices and so on. Uh, so today we are going to, uh, I really feel the Lord's put something specific on my heart. We're going to kind of dabble some in the specific passage of scripture that uh, Judaism is following today for the, the supplemental Parsha on Passover. But I really want to deal with the concept and idea of Passover itself and the, the image and, and promise of redemption, uh, especially because we are sitting right now in the midst of the season of redemption, the season of salvation. And, uh, and so I think it's important that we take the time to really look at that and what it means and, and what the Lord has done for us and wants to do for us. So if you'll open up to Exodus chapter 33, verse 12, we're going to quickly look at a little bit of the, the portion of Scripture that is for today, uh, traditionally. This passage, if you are familiar with Scripture in general, this passage is dealing with uh, Israel immediately after the golden calf. Immediately after they build a golden calf, Moses is on the mountain for a little too long. They get uncomfortable. They don't know what to do. They have only been out of Egypt for a short period of time, and now they have no leader. And with no leader, uh, you know, they say the cat, cat is away, the mouse will, mice will play, right? Israel's the mice. As soon as Moses is gone for a little bit too long, they freak out and they start doing whatever the heck they want. But as is natural, it's easiest for us as humans to return back to what we're used to, right? And the thing that a lot of people don't realize is that, that Israel in Egypt, just like Israel before Abraham, you know, well, there really wasn't an Israel before Abraham, but Abraham, who is the founding father, uh, literally, of Israel, Abraham came from pagan society, right? There, there wasn't this, you know, idea of Judaism before Abraham. Uh, there wasn't this idea of Israel and the Jewish people before Abraham. He came out of paganism, and just like Abraham came out of paganism, well, Israel and Egypt, for the most part, were, were, were back in paganism. All right? They were celebrating and doing all of the things that the Egyptians did. Um, they, they were less likely to have as much fun with it because they were being beaten and working and whatever, but, but they were as much pagans as anyone else. So when God redeemed Israel, it wasn't because of who Israel was at the moment, it was because of who Abraham was and who God wanted to make Israel in the future. And so when he redeems Israel out of Egypt, they come out of paganism, but they've been living in it for years and years and years now. And they come out into the wilderness and they're at Mount Sinai and they hear the voice of the Lord and they 
see all the signs and wonders that God did up to this point and what he's done for them at Mount Sinai. And so they're amazed and they're shocked and awed at the power and the might and the presence of God. And so they immediately fall in worship before him. But when Moses is gone too long and things aren't quite like they had hoped and expected it to be, they reverted back to where they came from, what they knew, what was comfortable. And this is normal for humans. We easily revert back to what is comfortable as opposed to doing what we're supposed to do on a regular basis. And so they build this golden calf and there's this whole scenario and God gets angry. Well, Moses comes back and at this point in chapter 33, verse 12, Moses is having this conversation with God in which God says to Moses, to Moses look, I'm just going to wipe him out and start fresh with you. And he says, no, no, don't do that, Lord. He says, I think really most of it's like, I just don't want to be that guy. Like, <laughs> who wants to be that guy? And Moses is like, don't do that because what's everybody else? What are the nations going to think? What is Egypt going to think? What are the nations going to think of you if you do this? Uh, and so Moses has this whole conversation. God says, okay, cool. I won't wipe them out. Uh, they can go and do their thing. And Moses says, look, we don't want to go anywhere if you don't go with us. And so in verse 12, it says, So Moses said to Adonai, You say to me, bring this people, but you have not let me know whom you will send with me. Yet you have said, I know you by name, and you have also found grace in my eyes. Now then I pray that if I have found grace in your eyes, show me your ways so that I may know you, so that I might find favor in your sight. Consider also that this nation is your people. Verse 14, Adonai says, My presence will go with you, and I will give you rest. But then he said to him, if your presence does not go with me, don't let us go from here. For how would it be known that I or your people have found favor in your sight? Isn't it because you go with us that distinguishes us from all the people on the face of the earth? Israel is not special because of who Israel is. The Jewish people, we're not special because of who we are. Look, we mess up as much as anybody else, probably more so. Uh, we let both the temple be destroyed twice because we like to mess up, right? We split God's kingdom because we decided we knew better than God did. And we went northern kingdom, southern kingdom, northern kingdom, turned idolatry and fell away. And, and we just keep messing up over and over and over again, right? And God knew this. God knew Israel. He knew the human heart. It's not just Israel. He knows the human heart. He knows that we're going to jack things up as we go. He knows we're going to mess stuff up. He knew Adam and Eve were going to sin before he ever created creation itself. Yet he still did. Which tells us that God created us for one distinct person, purpose. He created us to redeem us. He created us to redeem us. As I've said before, if I were God and I knew that, that my creation was going to turn its back on me, I just wouldn't waste my time. And my wife says all the time, thankfully I'm not God. But as we look at the scriptures, what we see is Israel does continually mess up. They continually over and over again mess up. But the Lord still brought them out of Egypt and redeemed them. And so here in Exodus 33, what we read about in this week's Parsha, as we look at it, is God is, uh, and Moses and God are having this conversation. Moses is saying, look, if you don't go with us, don't send us. We just won't move. Let us die here. Because how are the nations to know that we are truly yours if you're not with us? Notice God's presence isn't there just to lead Israel. God's presence is there apparently for the nations to see. Why? Because what was Abraham called out to be? A light to the nations. He was called out to carry the light of God to the nations. Likewise, and I truly believe this is why Messianic synagogues should be predominantly Gentile. Don't get me wrong, there should be a butt ton of Jews in Messianic synagogues, but it should be predominantly Gentile. You know why? Because there's a purpose to the relationship between Jew and Gentile. The Jew was called out to be a light to the nations. The Gentiles are brought into the body of Messiah to drive the Jew to jealousy for his God. It's necessary that we work together. My job is to reach the nations. The nation's job is to drive my people to jealousy for our God. 
It's a cyclical process. It's something that requires both of us. But as we see in Exodus 33, Moses says, look, if you're not going to go with us, just don't let us go anywhere. Just let us die out here. There's no point in us going forward because the nations need to know that you are with us. And so I want to backtrack a little bit now that we've set up uh, Israel and how quickly we mess up, and in particular, this conversation between a, uh, uh, Moses and God, and God says, look, I'll go with you. I'll do as you say. You're right. I'll go with you. I don't think God changed his mind. I think he wanted to see the mediator's heart. I think he wanted to see Moses' heart. But if you'll jump back now to Exodus chapter 6, verse 2. During our Passover Seder, we drink how many cups of wine? Four. Four. Right? And traditionally, you fill the glass all the way up because a sign of joy is a full cup. And so in the Passover Seder, normally you would fill a glass all the way up and you'd drink the whole thing four times. And, and there's either a lot of joy or a lot of made-up joy. Either way it goes, there's joy slinging around all over the place. But we, we drink four cups of wine, and the tradition behind the four cups actually comes from this passage of Scripture from Exodus chapter 6. Uh, beginning in verse 2, it says, God spoke further to Moses and said to him, I am Adonai. I appeared to Abraham to Isaac and to Jacob as El Shaddai. Yet by my name, Adonai, did I make myself known to them. I also established my covenant with them to give them the land of Canaan, the land of their pilgrimage where they journeyed. Furthermore, I have heard the groaning of B'nai Israel, of the children of Israel, whom the Egyptians are keeping in bondage. So I have remembered my covenant. Verse 6, this is where the beginning of the promises occur. Verse 6, therefore say to B'nai Israel. I am Adonai, and I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. I will deliver you from their bondage, and I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great judgments. I will take you to be my people, or I take you to myself as a people, and I will be your God. You will know that I am Adonai, your God, who brought you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. So I will bring you into the land that I swore to give to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob, and give it to you. As an inheritance, I am Adonai. So verse uh, 6 is where we actually get the blessings themselves, 6 and 7, that the, the four, four glasses of wine come from. The first is, I am Adonai, I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. The second, I will deliver you from their bondage. Uh, the third, and I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great judgments. And the, the fourth, I will take you, as my, my, take you to myself as a people and I will be your God. And then he says, and you will know that I am Adonai because of these things. So if you look at the description here, the description in these four promises is what? Redemption, salvation, deliverance, and that we are God's people. Not we are God's, but we are God's people. Awkward pause, comma in the wrong place. Uh, that we are God's people. And that's a very important realization. It's a very powerful realization that God has given us four very distinct promises. And in those four promises, we see one very simple concept, the gospel, the besor, the good news of Yeshua HaMashiach. As we look at these four in, in our Passover Seder uh, on Wednesday night, one of the things that we do, uh, as we did this past Wednesday, one of the things that we do is as we take these four cups, we look at them and, and we don't just recognize the promises from Exodus 6 that they come from, but we also look to the fulfillment of these promises in Messiah Yeshua. Because if this points us to Messiah, if the Seder in general, if Passover in general points us to Messiah, then every aspect of the Seder has to do so. And so as we look at the Passover Seder and we look at something that appears to just be tradition, what we realize is, is that God's providence is still a part of it. 
And so these four glasses of wine that are all related to the four promises in Exodus 6, on the outside, we might look at that and go, that's just a random tradition. Okay, cool, you drink four glasses of wine and it's connected to these four promises, but God doesn't say to do it that way. That's not how God says to celebrate Passover. And we always get that, that attitude from people sometimes about something. Well, that's not how God said to do it. Why are you doing it? That's just tradition. Well, no, we see God's providence in these traditions. Not to mention Yeshua, God himself, robed in flesh, honored these traditions and lived them out. And so as we see these four glasses of wine, they are just tradition, but they're tradition that shows the providence of God and the development of these traditions because it's in Judaism and through Judaism that we find Messiah. It's through Judaism that the nations find Messiah. He is the Jewish Messiah sent to the Jewish world and from them to the nations. Romans says to the Jew first and likewise to the nations. So he's not just Gentiles Messiah. No matter what the Orthodox Jews say, it's good enough for him to be the Gentiles Messiah, but he's not ours. He's not the Gentiles Messiah. If he's not our Messiah, he's nobody's Messiah. And he's not just the Jews Messiah. He's for all. If he's not for all, then he's not Messiah. That's the word of God. And I don't care how you like it or don't like it. That's the word of God. So when we look at these four promises in Exodus 6, they point to us. Not just to Israel and not just to the promises of redemption that God promised Israel coming out of Egypt. And they weren't only fulfilled in coming out of Egypt. As a matter of fact, we see that each one of them very literally were fulfilled in Israel's exodus from Egypt. Every single one of them. But we also see that they are fulfilled in our own lives because of the blood atonement and salvation of Messiah Yeshua. If you go to Hebrews chapter 10. Hebrews chapter 10 verse 10 tells us, by his will, we have been made holy through the offering of the body of Messiah Yeshua once and for all. By his will, we have been made holy by the offering of the body of Messiah Yeshua once for all. The first cup I will bring you out from under the Egyptians. Hebrews 10.10 shows us the fulfillment of this as we point out in our Passover Seder. Here's the beauty to this first promise. It's not just that God will bring us out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. But it also goes a little deeper. The idea goes further in concept, especially when we look at the four promises, not only speaking of Israel's deliverance, but speaking specifically of the gospel narrative of Messiah Yeshua. I take the first promise a step further, and it says, the Lord wants to free you from death's grip into salvation. If we look back to the original Exodus, what was the whole point of the blood of the lamb upon the doorpost? to free Israel from, the, from the, the punishment of death that Egypt was going to experience. The blood was put on the doorpost so that when the death angel passes over, they will pass over the houses of the Israelites. Keep in mind, although yes, the Israelites put the blood on their doorpost, it wasn't only the Israelites that would be saved if the blood was on the doorpost. The Lord says all whose house has the blood on the doorpost will be saved. Notice when Israel leaves Egypt, what does it say? It says that there was a mixed multitude that left with them. There were those of the nations that left with them. And although the rabbis will, will try to say that, that at some point between the um, sulf of the Sea of Reeds and Mount Sinai, the Gentiles all disappeared and went on their own way to do their own thing, I don't necessarily buy that to be accurate. That doesn't seem to be an overarching narrative of Scripture. If we look at Scripture, it's always been Jew and Gentile. We look at Abraham. Abraham's considered the first Hebrew. Sarah couldn't have been. So from a, a, a Hebrew or a Jew for the sake of nomenclature, we'll call him a Jew. From a Jew and a Gentile, we get Isaac. Isaac's the second Jew. Rebecca couldn't have been Jewish. From a Jew and a Gentile, we get Jacob. Jacob marries four non-Jews. So from a Jew and four non-Jews, we get the 12 sons of Israel, all of whom marry non-Jews. And we get the, the tribes of Israel, many of whom for years and years marry non-Jews. And we get the nation of Israel. In order for Israel to go into the promised land, only two people were allowed from the first generation that left Egypt to go in. Who was it? Jacob, uh, Joshua and Caleb. 
Joshua was Jewish, Caleb wasn't. Caleb was a Kenizzite. He was one of the, the Kenizzites, one of the original inhabitants of, of, of uh, Canaan. He wasn't Jewish, yet it was a Jew and a Gentile that leads Israel into the promises of God. We go to Ruth and Boaz. It took a Jew and a Gentile to give us David, uh, Melech David, King David, and Solomon, and ultimately Messiah, right? When we look at the gospel narrative, the overarching reality is, is God's intention was for the nation of Israel to be made up of both Jews and Gentiles together. Bought by the blood of the Lamb, the Lamb of, uh, who, is, who was slain for our sins, Yeshua HaMashiach. So here in the first promise, fulfilled in Hebrews 10.10, we see that the Lord wants to set us free from death's grip and the salvation. You ever wondered why Yeshua came as the Passover sacrifice and not the Yom Kippur sacrifice if he was for our final atonement? It was because the original Passover lamb was slain so that death would pass over us. What's the consequence of sin? Death itself. Eternal death. Eternal separation from the Father. So when the blood of the Lamb is upon our hearts, just as it was upon the doorpost, eternal death passes over us, just as the death angel passed over Israel. So the first promise, I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians, goes a little farther, that the Lord wants to free you from death's grip into salvation. The second promise, I will rid you from their bondage. Uh, Romans uh, 6, 15 through 18, we see the fulfillment of this, this second I will, the second promise. Romans 6, 15 through 18 says, What then? Shall we sin because we are not under the law but under grace? May it never be. I love Paul. Paul's a very sarcastic writer. I love Paul because, you know, I'm sarcastic too. Uh, and, and, and in other translations, he says, So should we go on sinning because we don't have to, we're not under the law anymore? Heaven forbid. Or may it never be. Or anything along these lines. He basically says, That's just stupid, right? That's my paraphrase. He says, that's just stupid. Uh, verse 16, do you not know that to whatever you yield yourselves as slaves for obedience, you are slaves to what you obey, whether to sin resulting in death or to obedience resulting in righteousness? In other words, we have been redeemed from the curse of the law. Being under the law isn't about keeping the commandments or not keeping the commandments. It's about the curse of not keeping them. We have been redeemed from the curse of the law. The curse of the law is what? Death. We've been brought into life. And so he says, uh, he says that, uh, that we've been redeemed from the curse of the law. We've been redeemed from, from being under law and into grace. So if that's the case, do we go on sinning? No, may it never be. And he goes on to say, because if you've been bought by the blood of the Lamb, but you are still a slave to sin, then you're not really saved. If you've been bought by the blood of the Lamb and everything in your life is just as it was before you accepted Yeshua, did you really accept Yeshua? Is your life really producing fruit? Notice the only example we get in Scripture of how to see if somebody's truly saved or not is whether their life produced fruit. Is your life truly producing fruit? And that's not just leading people to the Lord. Is your life honoring to God? Is it showing God's love and grace and mercy? Do people see His light in your life? Verse 17, but thanks be to God that though you were slaves of sin, you wholeheartedly obeyed the form of teaching under which you were placed. And after you were set free from sin, you became enslaved to righteousness. So do you want to be enslaved to sin or do you want to be enslaved to righteousness? God hasn't freed us from slavery to, in Egypt just so that we can go do whatever the heck we want and have a happy, jolly life living in the world as we care for he freed us from slavery in Egypt so that we could go into Israel, go into the promised land, and be enslaved to him. Enslaved in righteousness. Paul goes on here and he says, look, do you want to be enslaved to sin or do you want to be enslaved to righteousness? Our relationship with the Lord isn't so that our salvation in Messiah Yeshua isn't so that we can go about doing whatever the heck we want, anytime we want, living like everyone else out there. 
The Lord calls us to be set apart righteous and holy. He calls us to look different. And in the world we live in, that's not popular. But that's what God calls us to do is to be different, look different, act different. So that the world looks at us and sees there's something different about us. And they want what we have. Now, if you look different and they still don't see the light of the Lord in your lives, then you're wasting your time too. Because they have to see the presence of the Lord. So with the second I will, the second promise, the way I like to word this promise is that the Lord wants to free you from the bondage of sin. So first, He wants to free you from death's grip and to salvation. Second, He wants to free you from the bondage of sin. Because just because we, uh, you know, in, in a lot of congregations, people like to repeat after me and say this prayer of salvation and da-da-da. I don't actually buy into that. I think if you're going to ask the Lord for salvation, it needs to be from your heart. But aside from that, just because you said a prayer, have you truly submitted your life to the Lord? So the Lord may have freed you from death's grip, but have you truly submitted your life to the Lord? Have you realigned your servitude? Have you realigned who you're enslaved to? Are you enslaved to sin and death? Or are you enslaved to Messiah, to the Lord? So he wants to rid you from the bondage of sin itself. And sin is, in fact, bondage. If you ever notice, you start sin. It does, I don't care what the sin is. I don't care what it is. You look at pornography for three seconds, I promise you the fourth second is going to be easier, the fifth second is going to be easier, the sixth hour is going to be easier, the second week is going to be easier, the fourteenth week is going to be easier. Uh, you start using drugs, the first minute is going to be easy, the next time is going to be easy, the third time is going to be easy, the next week is going to be easier, and before long you're strung out on a bridge and you've lost everything that you've ever known, everybody you've ever loved, and it's still easy to get high. But the reality is, is the Lord wants to take us away from all of that. And he wants to bring us into the fulfillment of his restoration, of his redemption. He wants to bring us into righteousness. And living a righteous life is never easy. Because living a righteous life, you have to choose to do so. You have to choose to live right. You have to choose to honor the Lord. You have to choose to honor his word. You have to choose to be different than everybody around you. You have to choose to be different than your friends. You have to choose to willingly change your life so that you don't look like the world around us. And sadly, most of the body of Messiah today, you drive by any congregation, Joe Schmo congregation, on any day of the week, and the people leaving there, it's hard to tell if they're walking out of church or a synagogue or if they're walking out of a club on a Saturday night. Because we've just made it, we said, hey, what the heck, let's just become like the world. We're, we're not of the world, but we might as well live in it, right? No. No, we do have to live here, but we don't have to live in the world. We're to be set apart righteous and holy. The third promise, uh, I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great judgment. We see the fulfillment of this in Galatians 4, 4 through 5. Galatians 4, 4 and 5. And I'm actually going to go through verse 7. But, but when the fullness of time came, God sent out his son, born of a woman and born under the law, to free those under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. Now because you were sons, God sent the Ruach of his son, the spirit of his son into our hearts who cries out, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave to sin. And if a son, also an heir through God. So when we look at this third promise, the third I will, I will redeem you with an outstretched arm. We are, uh, uh, the Lord wants to give salvation. The Lord's salvation itself has been brought through the blood of the Lamb, Yeshua Mashiach, and all power and authority has been given to us through the Ruach HaKodesh because of it. He says, when we are bought by the blood of the Lamb, we are no longer just slaves to sin. We're no longer just Joe Schmo walking around, but instead we are infilled with the Ruach HaKodesh, with the Spirit of God. 
We're empowered with the Holy Spirit so that, one, we can actually make the choices we need to make to live the way we need to make, to, to live the way we need to live, to honor the Lord the way we need to honor the Lord, to honor His Word the way that we need to honor His Word, to be different. Because simply on human nature, clearly it's not possible. Human nature alone allowed Israel to build a golden calf, even though they just saw the power and the might of God over and over and over again. Human nature alone allowed both temples to be destroyed because of Israel's sin. Human nature alone allowed my forefathers, those of, of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the descendants of Israel, the Jewish people, since the first century, to deny Yeshua's Messiah. On human nature alone, we're never going to add up. We're never going to cut the mustard. We're never going to make it to righteousness. It is not possible. So even though the Lord wants to free us from death's grip, even though the Lord wants to free us from the bondage of sin, the Lord, in order to make us heirs, in order to make us sons and daughters, in order to make us live a righteous life, had to put his Ruach HaKodesh, which inspired the words of God, into our hearts so that we can truly walk faithfully in him. Because on our own, we're just never going to be able to do it. We're never going to be able to do it. Hence the reason why there are commandments in the Torah that are physical, external, observed commandments and the commandments in the Torah that are internal, observed commandments. So for instance, when Yeshua says, you've heard it said it's sin to commit murder, but I say if you've even hated somebody, you've already committed that sin in your heart. If you've heard it's sin to commit adultery, but I tell you if you've even lusted, you've already committed that sin in your heart. Both uh, lust and hatred were dealt with in the Torah. Both adultery and murder were dealt with in the Torah. But what Yeshua is saying, listen, for every external command, there's an internal command. And you can honor the external all day long. Look, we can keep kosher all day long. That doesn't mean the Spirit of God is inside of us. But when the Spirit of God is inside of us, when Yeshua's blood is upon our hearts, when Yeshua, the Word of God in flesh, lives inside of us, guess what? We start to naturally keep the internal commandments, and the external is never going to sin. So if you let the Lord fix your heart, if you let Him free you of bondage of sin, which is an internal thing, you let him free you of that bondage of sin so that you don't lust, you're never going to commit fornication or adultery. If you don't walk through the store or through the mall or through the park and go, oh, that lady's got a nice rump, you're never going to be in a position where you're going to want to go and sleep with her. It's just never going to happen, right? But the only way you can do this so that you don't do that is if the Lord is in here. There's just no other way about it. If there were, the rest of the world would look like us. They would live like us. They would act like us. But they don't, because the difference is the Spirit of God. So the Lord's salvation has been brought through the blood of the Lamb, Messiah, Yeshua, and all power and authority. And by the way, the blood of Messiah was poured out so that the power and authority could be put in us. All power and authority has been given uh, to us through the Ruach HaKodesh because of it. Not all power and authority over all things, but all power and authority over things of this earth which were given to us at creation. And if you want to know more about that concept, go and listen to the first session of a Ruach Encounter. Random uh, uh, shameless plug for you. Go listen to the first session of a Ruach Encounter. We talk all about that. We were created and God commanded Adam. He gave Adam ruler, dominionship, and authority over things of this world. Death, despair, sin, sickness, depression, all of these things are things of this world. They don't exist in heaven. When we cry out, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven, those things don't exist in heaven. God gave us rulership, dominion, authority over things of this world, and then we handed it over to the enemy. So when the enemy stood before Yeshua tempting him in, in, in Matthew 3 and Luke 3, and he says, hey, all the power and authority has been given to me here on earth, so if you'll bow before me, I'll give it to you. You know what? It was given to him. You know who? By us. God didn't give it to him. We gave it to him. It was ours. God gave it to us. 
And we chose to sin instead of walking faithfully with the Lord. And because we chose to sin, we handed that authority over to the enemy. Well, the Ruach HaKodesh, because of the blood of the Lamb upon our hearts, the Ruach HaKodesh, the Holy Spirit, is now a part of our lives. And that power and authority, rulership and dominion over things of this world, earth has been restored so that we can walk faithfully, so that we can speak against the things of the enemy, so that we can live in contrary to the things of this world, so that we can speak truth and life and salvation and redemption and restoration and deliverance into other people's lives so that we can be used by God to bring freedom to those in change, those in chain, bring light to those stuck in darkness so that we can bring life and hope to the world around us which has no concept of it. The fourth I will, the fourth promise is, uh, is fulfilled in, in Romans, or we see a fulfillment of it in Romans 11, uh, 1 through 27. It says, I will take you as my people, and I will be your God. If we go to Romans 11, go ahead and turn there for me real quick. Romans 11. Romans 11, verse 1 says, I say then, has God, uh, God has not rejected his people, has he? May it never be, for I too am an Israelite of the seed of Abraham, the tribe of Benjamin. God has not rejected his people whom he knew beforehand. Or do you know, not know what the scripture says about Elijah, how he pleads with God against Israel? And then we go on to verse, uh, verse 11 of, of the same chapter, verse 11, chapter 12, uh, verse 11 of chapter 11 says, I say then, they did not stumble. The Jewish people did not stumble so as to fall, did they? May it never be. In other words, they didn't stumble so that God could just be done with them, right? Replacement theology says God's done with the Jewish people because they didn't accept Yeshua. Now it's the Gentile church and screw the Jews if they don't come be a part of this, right? That's not what the Word of God says. The Word of God says they did not stumble so as to fall, did they? May it never be. But by their false steps, salvation has come to the Gentiles. Why do they stumble? So the Gentiles can be brought in. To provoke Israel to jealousy. Oh, whoa, hold on, hold on, hold on, hold on, hold on. What do you mean provoke Israel to jealousy? Now that God's done with the Jewish people, right? He's done with Israel. All those promises have been transferred to the Gentile church, right? That's what the church says for 2,000 years now, but that's not what the Word of God says. Why are Gentiles brought in? Just like I said before, to provoke Jews to jealousy for their God. Why are Jews allowed in? To drive, uh, to bring the light of God to the nations. We have a purpose. It's a simple purpose. We like to make it far more complicated than it is, but we have a simple purpose. It's to bring salvation to the nations and the nations to bring Jews to salvation. It's a simple purpose. But by their false steps, salvation has come to the Gentiles to provoke Israel to jealousy. Now, if their transgression leads to riches for the world and their loss riches for the Gentiles, then how much more their fullness? Then he goes on to say, but I am speaking to you who are Gentiles insofar as I am an emissary to the Gentiles. I spotlight my ministry of some of my... some. Somehow I might provoke to jealousy my own flesh and blood and save some of them. For if their rejection leads to reconciliation of the world, what will their acceptance be but life from the dead? See, we get things all backwards. We get things all out of whack. Like the, the old southern adage says, get the horse before the cart, right? I, I've never ridden a horse or a cart in that type of manner, but apparently it's an old adage. I hear it all the time, get the horse before the cart. And basically what it means is don't get ahead of yourself. The body of Messiah, we just got way ahead of ourselves. 1,700, 1,800 years ago, we got way ahead of ourselves. And we said, oh, well, the Jews deny Messiah, and now the Gentiles have them, so forget the Jews. Let's go do our own thing, and if the Jews want to come leave Judaism and come be a part of this, they can. That's not what the Word of God says. The Word of God says God brought the Gentiles in to drive the Jews to jealousy for their God. Gentiles were able to find salvation not because, or in place of Jews, but because the Jews did not accept salvation so that the Gentiles can drive the Jews to salvation. 
And we get ahead of ourselves and we go and we discombobulate things. We make things way more complicated than it has to be. The word of God makes it clear. We have a distinct purpose. The Jew is to be light to the nations. The Gentile is to drive the Jew to jealousy for his God. And so when we see in this fourth promise, uh, the fourth I will, I will take you as my own people and I will be your God. And we see its fulfillment in Romans. The reality is, is that by the blood of the lamb, we have been redeemed and made his. The promise is I will take you as my own people and I will be your God. Remember in Hosea, Hosea has a couple of kids. The first one is, you are not my people. And then he turns back around and says, okay, you're my people now. Your name has been changed. You're my people. Why? Because God wants us to return to him. He has created us to be his own. He created us to be his children, to be his heirs, to be in his kingdom for all eternity. You know why Adam and Eve didn't freak out when the Lord first appeared to them in the garden? You know why they knew to run and go get clothes on? Because the, the Lord was coming to see them in the middle of the day. It's because it happened every day. It wasn't something new. They were used to it. What changed was them, not God. God didn't suddenly do something new. We have no, long, no idea how long they lived in the garden. We have no clue. But it was long enough that they knew this was what God does every day. And they realized they failed, they sinned, they allowed sin in their life, they allowed the enemy to tempt them, and they fell to that temptation. And they had to go and prepare themselves for the Lord because the Lord cannot reside in the midst of sin. And so every moment since then, in, in all honesty, God doesn't have plan B. There's God's plan, there's God's will, and we're either in it or out of it. There's no perfect will and permissive will. There's God's will, and we're either in it or we're out of it. Sometimes when we're out of it and we finally get back along in line with it, what we did outside of it, God uses for his glory anyways, but that doesn't mean that was what he wanted for us. You end up in prison, you end up in prison because God wanted you there. You end up in prison because you got out of God's will. Doesn't mean he can't use it for his glory. Doesn't mean he won't use it for his glory. As a matter of fact, if you let him, he wants to use it for his glory, but it wasn't his will. If you sin, it wasn't his will. If you deny him, it wasn't his will. The reality is, is the Lord wants nothing more than to restore us, redeem us, and save us for his purposes. These four promises in Exodus chapter 6 points us to that direction. These four promises are not just promises to Israel of what God is going to do when they come out of Egypt. It's what God is going to do through Messiah for all of Israel and ultimately for all the nations, those who may call out upon his name. Salvation is free to all who may choose to accept it. The reality is, is we like to mess things up. We like to make it more complicated than it has to be. Those four promises tell us that the Lord wants to give us salvation so that we are freed from death's grip. He wants to free us from the bondage of sin. His salvation has been brought by the blood of the Lamb, Yeshua Mashiach, so that all power and authority can be given to us through the Ruach HaKodesh, the Holy Spirit, so that we can affect the world around us, so that we can change the world around us for His purposes. And we've been made his by the blood of the lamb. He has redeemed us to be his by the blood of the lamb. He has changed our name from not his people, from not his children, from not his son or daughter to his son or daughter. Our names have, are, are no longer David, son of Adam, son of man, son of the first man. My name is now David, son of Adonai. I am a prince the King of kings, the Lord of lords, the Holy One of all eternity. And each of you are princes and princesses. We are heirs in the kingdom of God. 
The blood of the Lamb has been poured out that you and I could be freed from the bondage of sin so that we can live in relationship with Him. And when we live in relationship with Him, our lives change, and because our lives change, others' lives change. A lot of times we look at this as though it's all about us, but it's not. It's not. Ask anybody in the room if they've ever come into contact with somebody that knew them from years back before they were truly walking with the Lord and then reappeared in their life again later on. And those that see a difference, those that see a change, those are the ones that are walking in the Lord. Look, there are people that knew me years and years ago. Miss Maxine's one of them. Miss Maxine knew me when I was a teenager, probably when I was at my worst, or at least close to it. Miss Maxine knew me years ago. And I promise you, if she thought back to what I used to be and who I am now, or at least I want to promise you, she can correct me if I'm wrong, I'm hoping I'm not, but I promise you that if she thinks back to who I used to be and who I am now, two different people. Not because I myself physically am any different. I'm still me, I'm still David, I'm still the son of Eric, I'm still the same idiot, naturally. But spiritually, supernaturally, something's changed. The Lord has done a work. And he's restored me in the image and likeness of my creator that he wanted me to be in the first place. And every waking moment and every breath that I take every day of my life, my purpose, my intention should always to be more and more and more molded into that image and likeness of my creator that he originally created me to be. That sin has marred and scarred and damaged. And he wants to fix all of that. Listen, here's the bottom line. I'm going to close with this. I don't care how bad of a mistake you've made. I don't care how deep and down and dirty that sin was. I don't care how many lives were wrecked because of it. I don't care how your life was wrecked because of it. I don't care how far away from God you feel like you are or how long it's been since you've heard his voice or seen his face or felt his presence and known his embrace in your life. You can never go too far for the Lord to, to redeem you. He wants to redeem you. His blood was poured out for you. He wants to love you. He wants to wrap his arms around you. He wants you to fall on your face, recognizing your mistakes, and wholly submit your heart and your life to him so that he can change you and his presence can dwell in you in fullness so that you can be restored and renewed. And all those people that knew you before, they're going to see a different countenance upon you. They're going to see the light of the Lord in your countenance. They're going to see the presence of the Lord. When Moses came down off the mountain after the golden calf. It was after all of that occurred that we see Moses come off the mountain and his face is radiated with the glory of the Lord. That's available for you and me all the time. I love when people walk up and go, there's something different about you. Most people might freak out about it. I thank God there's something different about me. It's only because of him. We're in a season of redemption and restoration, a season of salvation right now. We're counting the omer in preparation, and I hope in your own lives in anticipation of what is awaiting at Shavuot. Shavuot is a very specific, important day in terms of the move of God. And the church world is known as Pentecost. It's a very important day in terms of the move of God. Prophetically, we experience the voice of the Lord and receive the Torah at Mount Sinai on Shavuot. The outpouring of the Ruach HaKodesh in Acts chapter 2, the Holy Spirit and Acts chapter 2 occurred on Shavuot. We are counting in preparation. It's the only festival in which the Lord commanded us to count toward. Every day we're supposed to count toward Shavuot in preparation and anticipation and excitement and in joy of what the Lord has waiting. 
The Lord wants to do something fantastic in our lives on Shavuot every year, but especially this year. I don't know if you can feel it, but there's a building every week towards it. The Lord wants to do something amazing in our hearts and our lives this year on Shavuot. He wants to do it every year, but let's start with this year. He wants to do something amazing in our hearts and our lives, but in order for that to occur during this season of repentance and restoration and redemption, we need to truly find his redemption. You may be bought by the blood of the lamb, but you may still be trying to hide stuff. And the enemy's going to use that to try and demolish what the Lord wants to do in your life, to try and derail the presence of his spirit in your life, to try and derail his voice in your life and his direction upon your footsteps. Sometimes we have to be willing to get down to the deep, dark, dirty parts of our lives and just wholeheartedly lay it out before the Lord and let him deal with it. Because everything we try to hide, that's why the word says to repent your sins one to another. It's not because there's anything necessary in terms of somebody else hearing about it. It's not because the Lord wants us to be embarrassed in front of people. It's because as long as we carry that guilt and shame ourselves, the guilt and shame that he's already bought and gotten rid of, as long as we carry it ourselves, the enemy can use it against you. And the enemy's going to look at you and go, oh, but you, know, you think the Lord loves you, but don't you remember when you did this? Don't you remember when you did that? And don't you remember when you did that? And the whole time the enemy's saying that, we're still hiding it. We're still holding on to it. And we're, we're refusing to let it go because we don't want anybody to think less of us. We don't want anybody to think that we're that kind of person. And the whole time the Lord's sitting there and he's going, but look, the charges I have against you are blank. There's nothing here. The enemy can't hold that against you. Just let it go. Just let it go so that you can be wholly redeemed and restored. Just let it go. And we grab tighter and tighter and tighter. The season of redemption is an opportunity for us to lay it all down before the Lord. Take the time to sit down with somebody and let it off your chest. Take the time to open up. Share that burden. It's what relationship is all about. Because the Lord wants to do something in your life. Not for your own sake, but for those of the sake of those around you. Think about the lives that could be changed at your work or your school or your, your family or your extended family or in the grocery store or the mall or wherever else. Think of the lives that could be changed because what the Lord wants to do in your life, if you just let him. That radiant glory on Moses' face is supposed to be on yours and mine as well. That is the countenance of the Lord that is upon us. And we need to let him have complete and total control. So again, in closing, I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians, the first promise. I like to reword it like this. The Lord wants to free you from death's grip into salvation. Second, I will rid you from their bondage. The Lord wants to free you from the bondage of sin. Third, I will redeem you with an outstretched arm. The Lord's salvation has been brought by the blood of the Lamb, Yeshua Mashiach. All power and authority has been given to us through the Ruach HaKodesh, the Holy Spirit, because of His salvation. That's that outstretched arm, that might and that power of God. And fourth, I will take you as my own people and you will, I will be your God. By the blood of the Lamb, you and I, each of us, have opportunity for redemption, to be made His, to be restored, renewed, to be true and complete heirs in the kingdom of God. Are you willing to make that step during this season of redemption? so that you can walk in the fullness of the promises God has in store for you. So you walk in the fullness of the presence of the Lord that he has in store for you. He doesn't want any of us to be left behind. He doesn't want any of us to be left out. He doesn't want any of us to feel separated from him. But if you feel separated from him now, how much worse is it going to be in the future? Give him your all now so that he can redeem you and restore you now 
so that you can affect the future for his kingdom, for his glory, and see eternity. Avirachamim, Father of mercies, we worship you. We love you. We adore you, Father. We thank you for kicking us in the hide sometimes, slapping us across the back of the head, awaking us to the reality of how fallen we can still be even as believers and the necessity that we must walk day in and day out in your presence, that we must walk day in and day out in your restoration, that we must truly day in and day out repent over and over again. Because every little sin in our life, every little thing that mars your image and likeness in our lives can debilitate our relationship with you and your impact through us on the world around us. So, Father, I pray that your Ruch HaKodesh moves upon each and every person in this room and every person hearing these words, that our hearts will be returned to you, restored to you, that we will be renewed in the fullness of the promises awaiting us, that we will see the truth of your salvation in its fullness, Lord, that we will wholly and entirely submit our lives to you, that we will become slaves to your righteousness, that we will allow ourselves to be used by you to be a light into the world. In the name of Yeshua, our Messiah, we pray. And everyone says, Amen. Amen.